The Walk the Mile podcast is produced on Gadigal land. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Skeg Starlinghurst stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. May our reconciliation be an ongoing process of love and compassion. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Lee Lindsay, school chaplain at Skeggs Darlinghurst, and you're listening to Walk the Mile, a podcast that opens up conversations that we need to have. And I have with me today Caroline West. How are you, Caroline? Very well, thank you, Gary. <laughs> Good to have you here. Caroline has uh, joined our Skeggs community just this year because you've got a daughter in year seven. Yes. Annabelle. Annabelle. And uh, hopefully, hopefully she's having a, a good time. <laughs> she is. <laughs> getting very, used to it. Very happy. Yeah. yeah, very happy. Well, it takes a while, doesn't it, getting into high school, from yeah. primary school. It's a big step up, big change. Now... Tell us a little bit about you. You are a doctor of philosophy, and what? How? Where's that taken you? What are you doing with that now? Uh, well, it's taken me lots of places. I never expected to be a philosopher. I started off doing law, and I sort of fell into philosophy back in the days when you didn't have to pay for all the subjects you did right. at uni. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to try all sorts of things. I didn't have any idea really what they were, right. but you could find out. So I did archaeology and among the subjects I took was philosophy and I was just completely gripped by it. Wow. And then I um, you ended, ended up doing a PhD and any every, every year I think right now I'm going to have to go back to the real world and right. <laughs> finish my law degree, but it never... Happened, so I got interested in political philosophy, what yep. makes for a just society, and um, the nature of free speech. Yep. What are the limits on free speech, or what should they be? And um, and then I just got drawn into more more general kind of ethical questions and mm-hmm. questions about the nature of happiness. One of the oldest questions from philosophy: What does yeah. it take to live a good life? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, wow. and when you're talking about before, you were talking about. Um, the ethical questions or, or a, just, a just society. Does philosophy have to have an ethical stance necessarily or an ethical trajectory in some way? Or does it, all, does it end there in some way? I think a lot of philosophy is about asking questions and thinking critically. So, um, for instance, in ethics, uh, people have you know different views about um, right and wrong, and those vary from society mm-hmm. from soci- to society, but also um, different individuals within a society might disagree about you know, the morality of genetic engineering mm. or, um, or euthanasia. People have different views. And so uh, part of philosophy is, you know, the, there's been a very long history of discussion, different ways of thinking about questions of right and wrong, should we focus on the consequences of action? Or should mm. we think about the type of action that it is? Yeah. Should we focus on people's atten- intentions? 
and how do all those things interact with each other. So philosophy isn't in itself an ethical perspective, but it does involve asking big questions and thinking critically about yeah. um, different moral questions. Yeah. yeah. And do you, are you drawn to it? Are you the sort of person who likes to have those discussions without any answers? Or <laughs> well, I, think if you, I, I think many philosophical discussions uh, don't have easy answers yeah. because they're very difficult questions and sort of progress in philosophy sometimes comes not when everyone agrees about something mm -hmm. but just by getting clearer about um, what the what the questions really are and what it would take for there to be to have a good answer to that yeah. sort of question so yeah I feel I'm, I am one of those people who um, like have an urge to try to think clearly about mm. questions and mm. to try and even if you don't can't work out which answer is right, at least see what the different possible answers yeah. are yeah. and how they fit together sure. and why you might believe one of those yeah. things rather than another. So trying to understand where different points of view come from, sure. what motivates them. And how often would you get to a, a right answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I often get to answers that I think are right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, That's right. But... but uh, no, but I, I think one of the things about philosophy is that you can, you know, it's a sort of ongoing conversation, yeah. an ongoing conversation where the parties to the conversation share certain assumptions about what the rules of rational engagement are. Yeah, right. So philosophers try and there's certain sort of accepted tools of logic, you know, what follows from what. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you want your opinions to be consistent, you know, not contradictory. And so a lot of um, philosophical discussions go by sort of pointing out sometimes unobvious inconsistencies in your opponent's view and, yeah. and they'll think, oh yeah, I can't, yeah. can't believe P and not P. So, right. so, and, and so over time, I think, you know, sort of make gradual progress, but it's very much an ongoing conversation, yeah, I think. And were you involved, it sounds to me, well, can't assume this, but it sounds to me that you might have been involved in your schooling. Were you involved in debating? I was. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was. And that you like that type of. I do. I I like um, you know collections of people sort of putting their heads together yeah. and trying yeah. to work out um, you know how we should live together yeah. and. Um, yeah. do, do you think it's hard to get people involved in those conversations these days? Um, well, I think uh, on social media, there's a there's a lot of refusal to engage with yeah. other points of view and things like that, echo chambers. And, but actually, I find um, with students and, uh, you know, students at university, uh, most of them are, you know, very smart and very interested in um, trying to think through the questions that, you know, for them are pressing. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so I, fi I find that it's actually very easy to have right. a kind of rational discussion with, with them. Yeah, yeah, good. That's good. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, I know kids here as well, students here will often come in and ask fairly broad questions mm. and they, they enjoy that engagement in those conversations. Uh, in, in my lessons, I, we have a question box and they say you can ask whatever questions mm. you want and I pull them out and I say, I'm not going to answer the questions, they're just for discussion. Yeah. And they're really interesting questions. Yeah. So, and they love it. They really enjoy yeah. doing it. I mean, for me, the thing I, that 
was most exciting about philosophy was the that it's liberating. You know, there's mm. no question that you can't ask. Yeah. So if you're, you know, doing political science, you kind of study the way political systems work. But if you do um, political philosophy, you can ask, is this the way they should work? You know, how yeah, should right. we, if you were designing an ideal society from scratch, yeah. how would you set it up? Yeah. What ways of setting it up would be sort of equitable and just? Or, yeah. And what even does it mean for something to be equitable and just? Yeah. So, yeah, no question is too... Uh, radical or off limits that's yeah. right yeah. yeah and you are currently involved in well tell us about this philosophy of happiness uh, what you're working on at the moment because I've got quite a few questions uh, I guess around that and what what you consider it to be and uh, anyway but you were telling me a little while ago about how you came into this. You want to yeah. relay that story? So I, yes, I will. So I, I set up a philosophy of happiness course maybe 10, sort of 12 years ago now right. at Sydney Uni. So we've had you know, thousands of students um, go through it. And uh, yeah, my interest, I suppose, in, in happiness in particular kind of arose because years ago when I was thinking about having kids, you know, going back 14 <laughs> years or something right. now, um, one of my colleagues... Uh, came and knocked on my door and said you should you've got to read this study before you have kids you've got to make a rational informed decision you know being a philosopher and so he handed over this book and he said turn to chapter four so I did and I just saw study after study and graph after graph um, claiming to demonstrate that having kids makes you really unhappy and miserable <laughs> and <laughs> so that kind of got me thinking you know was what um, what are the studies measuring you know, so these are studies from really reputable psychology journals, you mm -hmm. know, academic psychology mm -hmm. journals. Are they really measuring happiness? Mm, are they measuring yeah. happiness of a kind that matters? You know, and what should I do with these findings? Am I, is this like a rational argument against having kids yeah. or something? So, yeah, those are the questions that got me interested and in that started thinking about the nature of happiness. Mm. And, um, of course, there's a very long tradition of thinking about happiness yeah. stemming back, well, in, in Eastern traditions as well as Western traditions, yeah. but in the West going back at least as far as philosophers like Aristotle and yeah. in ancient Greece. So, it, and it, it um, yeah, it's kind of fascinating area, a nice interdisciplinary area too, yeah. where um, there's a lot of potential for collaboration between psychologists. They want to turn happiness into something you can measure. You know, that's their yes. kind of concern. Whereas philosophers are more interested in, you know, what is the nature of this thing yeah. we call happiness? Because it's hard to define, isn't it? I, I think it is anyway. It's a very hard thing to define because it would be easy to... Um, I guess when I'd heard about what you did, part of my thinking was, is this the sort of positive psychology type of happiness? That what can you do to be happy? Whereas... And can correct me if I'm wrong. You're sort of talking about well, what's the nature of it? What are we actually seeking? What are we looking for when we're talking about happiness? You know, a lot of parents will say, "I just want my kids to be happy." Yeah. Or, as, or they'll say to their kids, "As long as you're happy." Yeah. Uh, but what does that mean? What does that actually mean? So that is one of the big questions: philosophy of happiness. What is it, and how valuable is it? And yeah, that's a very distinctively sort of philosophical question because you know psychologists they operationalise happiness, they just define it, you know, in terms of yeah. something that can be measured. So, yeah. so if you ask a psychologist what is happiness, they'll say 
Um, a happy person is one who experiences lots of positive emotion, you know, they're generally cheerful, yeah. not too much negative emotion, you know, they're not often sad or angry or bored um, and is generally satisfied with their life as a whole. So if you ask them uh, to rate, uh, you know, overall how satisfied would you say you are with your life on a scale of zero to ten, yeah. you know, a happy person's one who gives, you know, six or higher in answer yeah, to that question. Right, right. Um, and, you know, whereas a philosopher kind of looks at that and thinks, but that's fine, but, you know, you, how, how does that... Uh, thing that's being measured how does that connect with happiness as we ordinarily conceive yeah. it and is it really the important good that yeah. so many of us suppose so you're talking about like an in a objective sense yeah so i suppose when most people um you know there is this idea this psychological conception of what happiness is mm. or in fact there's quite a few different psychological yeah. conceptions of what happiness is but basically on all those ways of thinking about happiness it's just a state of mind mm. so you could be a brain in a vat floating around and perfectly happy yeah. just so long as you or think of um you know the denizens of aldous huxley's brave new world you know with their mm. never-ending free supply of yeah. soma yeah um they're happy in any purely psychological sense of the word. You know, yeah. they've got all the right psychological states. But many people, I think, would, would not, thinking about that sort of case, would, would say, well, they're not really happy. They're living in a fool's paradise. You yes. know, they've been brainwashed and drugged yeah. into having these positive states. Yeah. But So I think most people, when they want their kids to be happy, it's not this soma fueled <laughs> kind of happiness that they have in mind. It's something else. So, yeah, yeah. what is it exactly? What that is we it want? exactly? Yeah. It's interesting. To, um, I remember years ago, uh, over winter, for quite a few years, we used to take out soup and blankets to homeless people yeah. around the city. And there was one guy who would never accept our, you know, a cup of soup or a blanket yeah. or anything. And he used to be out uh, near Woolworths, the town hall, sit on this milk crate had a little bag with all this stuff in it and he said I don't want to accept this and he'd say because I'm happy happy with what I've got now my picture or you know as we saw this person we thought how could you be happy living in this situation I don't want a home I want to live like this very I thought you know that stuck with me because you know I had to I had to sort of wrestle with this idea of having what you need in order to be comfortable or happy yeah. in, in my mind but this guy somehow I believed him yeah because I, I suppose one type of happiness is very relative to expectations so there's mm. quite a lot of research about comparing um, homeless people in developed nations like the US and homeless people in Calcutta right. and other and they find that people who are living homeless in communities where they have support you know they feel supported and um uh you know can you know not all of those people but some of those people can feel quite contented with yeah. their yeah. um with their situation much yeah. more contented than people in the west might be because you know they don't particularly crave yeah. material well-being sort of comparative yeah thing. that's right and their baseline for comparison is different yeah. you know what what about as a feeling, happiness as a feeling? Mm. Uh, you know, what can we do to feel happy? Substance <laughs> induced. Yeah. yeah. 
it can be you know going to your favorite place so just that feeling of happiness how is that connected to an overall understanding of what happiness is how, how much does that sort of connect to your philosophy as well mm. well if you're thinking that there's many different sorts of feelings which you might associate with happiness so there's this kind of transitory emotions like a long mm. history of thinking of happiness in terms of experiencing lots of pleasure and that might be sort of quite short-lived kind of episodes of pleasure um, doing things that you enjoy um, but then there's also kind of other feelings more lasting feelings of contentment mm. or the ancient Greeks actually had a fantastically rich vocabulary for thinking about all the different sorts of mental states um, associated with that might be associated yeah. with happiness our vocabulary by comparison is really quite impoverished yeah. so they would think of things like tranquility but they didn't just mean I mean it's partly peace of mind but it was also kind of feeling settled and confident in your in your body and your soul yeah, you know right. like feeling at home with yeah. who, who you are yeah. um, and so now there's quite a lot of research looking at if you know how you know different activities we can do different you know in order to achieve these kind of more lasting kind of states of peace of mind yeah, yeah. absence of anxiety yeah. and um, you'll like to hear this Gary <laughs> but it turns out that actually that one of the best things you can do is help other people yeah, um, right. if you if you want to uh, mm. have this sort of lasting generalized sense of well-being yeah. then doing good for others is and what do you yeah. think that's about because it, it doesn't necessarily well in my mind I, I agree with you I totally yeah. agree with you and, I, and that's what we tell the students yeah. as well but what is the connection to that how does that work yeah well I, I think it's because you know we're kind of social creatures mm. and um, you know it makes us you know feel good to be uh, helping other people mm. I mean there's a long tradition of philosophers who thought about this some people have said you know it's we, we like to demonstrate our superiority. You know, that was Thomas Hobbes's view. Right. Makes people feel feel superior to other yeah. people. But I don't think, you know, that I, I don't see why you have to think that's true. But there's a lot of it's modern science that, sh that shows um, how um, good helping other people is mm. for individuals' happiness. So even if you're mo the most selfish person yeah. and the only thing you really care about is your own yeah. happiness, the best way to get it is still via helping yeah others and so they the, the psychologists compare people they'll do things like give people a certain amount of money and people can choose to spend it on themselves or give yeah, it to yeah, others yeah. yeah and it makes people happy to give it wow. happier to give it to others and how much of that how much of your sense of purpose is connected mm. to happiness not just finding your purpose mm. not, I guess I'm not talking about you know, I've suddenly realized why I'm here on this planet but just that sense of purpose Again, objectively as a whole, what are we here on this planet mm. for? And engaging in that, I don't know. Is that what you're trying to? Is that what you're saying? I guess in terms of giving and generosity. Mm. Well, I suppose people can have different purposes, and some purposes are more altruistic and mm. giving than others. Um, you know, some some people have you know they're, they're very career focused, and that's kind of what structures their life and yeah. gives it meaning. It just turns out that if you want to feel good um, then it's better if you can get at least some of your purpose through helping others than mm. just through focusing yeah, on yourself, on yourself yeah. yeah before you're talking about our 
like the Western culture or our societies. Uh, so I, I think I heard you. Well, you didn't necessarily use these words, but it was sort of saying that our view of happiness or contentment is quite narrow or yeah. restricted. Yeah. What? Why is it restricted? Do you think? Or how have we come to that? Well. I think that we focus just on, there's a particular type of feeling that people in the West tend to focus on, we call it the joy-sadness axis. Yeah, you know? right. Um, am I feeling cheerful or not? Am yeah. I upbeat? Am I buoyant yeah. or whatever? And so you have that kind of smiley-faced feelings way of thinking about yeah. happiness. But, um, uh, I mean, in more ancient traditions, they definitely did have the joy-sadness axis, but they also had these other things. Engagement was one of them. How engaged are you with what you're doing? And that's different from, you know, are you, does it make you feel cheerful yeah, every minute? Yeah. Because some of the things that you can be really engaged with are difficult and challenging and mm. uh, takes a while to yeah. master the skills. Um, but there's a kind of deep sense of satisfaction and purpose that comes from yeah. doing that. Yeah. So they, you could think of that as the engagement axis, you know, and people can be more or less engaged or disengaged with their lives and what they're doing um, and then there was there's a kind of um, kind of confidence axis that the ancient Greeks talked a lot about where it has to do with do you feel safe in your body and your life and they didn't just mean physically yeah, right, safe right do you feel like you have to be defensive like you're uh -huh. surrounded by threats which yeah, might come right. at you any minute right. or do you feel like you can relax and yeah. breathe and maybe even explore and be curious and yeah. things like that. So um, if you read Aristotle, we've got these lovely descriptions of different ways of being, you know, he sort of talks about people who are sort of got these shriveled up defensive souls, you know, that, and they're sort of guarded against the yeah. world versus yeah. people who are sort of more, more open and curious yeah. and expansive. Yeah. And Aristotle thought that was a better way to be. Yeah. It's, it's a, Sounds a bit like you know knowing, knowing yourself, being able to have a, a, a good awareness of mm. your own identity in a way. Yeah, yeah. There's some of that, but I think some of it is also the social environment that you're in. So I right. think one thing I've noticed that Skeggs does really well is create a kind of learning environment where the kids feel confident in being curious and expansive, and not worried about sort of being. That it's safe. Yeah, that's yeah. safe. And they're not worried about being, um, you know, told off or slapped down for saying yeah. something silly, you know. Yeah, so, right. And I think that's, um, and, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks thought that was very important for us to be able to do as a society, you know, yeah. have a society where people felt safe. Yeah. Um, and that even if bad things happened, even if misfortune struck, yeah. you know, they, they would be looked after. Yeah. There's something you said before, and... Uh, made me think about uh, and I was talking about this to someone earlier today about vocation and occupation yeah. and uh, having a vocation having something that it's not just your job that you get paid for but something as you said you know that, that you're passionate about that you get energy from even yeah. if it's challenging uh, how does that sort of fit in terms of your vocation in life and I guess it's hard isn't it because and maybe this is to do with our culture as well. When people talk about what's your purpose or what's yeah. your meaning, it's almost like there's got to be a, a solid material path to yeah. to go down. Um, just maybe another story when a girl came in here once 
and she said, oh, I want to know my purpose. Mm -hmm. Tell me, what's my purpose? Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Let's talk about it. We talked about it. We were going all over the place, probably a little bit as I imagined philosophy to be like. Yeah. And uh, I said, what if our purpose was just to wonder? Yeah. Just to wonder. And she went away and I got a message from her, her mum the next day. And she said, you know, her daughter's come home and said, her purpose is to wonder. What's yeah. this all about? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think sometimes, you know, the idea that you have a purpose that's already fixed and your job is to find it. I don't think that's a helpful way to think about purpose because it's mm. a sort of, you kind of don't know what your purpose no. is until you try this and that and yeah. you wonder, as you say, and you try different things and you find out what you find interesting and, yeah. you know, what you're good at and, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's a process of discovery in that. Process yeah. of or discovery. Construction, actually, not discovery, you know. Right. You make your purpose. Right. By are there any situations, do you think, um, I don't know if this is a dumb question, but are there any situations where you think the pursuit of happiness mm. can be dangerous? Mm. I, I think that's a great question. I think the self-conscious, so there's an, there's an old paradox that um, one of the great British philosophers, John Stuart Mill, talked about. He called it the paradox of hedonism. And... Uh, you know, he says, those only find happiness who have their mind fixed on some object other than their own happiness. You know, aiming right. thus at something else, they find, you know, you find happiness as a byproduct. Yeah. And he says, ask yourself if you're happy and you cease to be so. There's something, you know, as, as soon as you start asking, am I happy? Yeah. There's something self-undermining yeah, about right. it. So Mill thought, if you care about happiness, then the best way to achieve it is to not constantly think about it all the time but instead pursue other projects that you right. think are worthwhile and you pursue them for their own sake you know not just as a means to happiness and then if you're lucky you know yeah. you'll get happiness yeah. as a byproduct yeah. of those things because that's a huge trap isn't it like mm. it might be it might be a person that yeah. people pursue you know yeah. i'll only be happy if i'm with this person and yeah. i'll only be happy if i have this thing yeah I'll only be happy if I live in this area. Yeah. And it's a huge trap because it does, it's quite limiting, isn't it? I think so. And then I also think there's this assumption which a lot of science shows is uh, mistaken, but it, you know, our brains <laughs> lead us astray in the pursuit yeah. of happiness, I think. Because, you know, your brain tells you to try and satisfy your desires. Um, but getting what you want doesn't mean liking what you get. And there's yes. a lot of evidence that suggests that um, one thing that makes you know, people much less happier than they would otherwise be is not thinking more carefully about the nature of their goals. Uh, you just think, if, if I just achieve this, then I'll be happy. And if I just achieve yeah. that, then I'll be happy. Yeah. And um, uh, you know, if, if the goals are just for materialistic things, mm. um, then there's lots of research that suggests that the kind of happiness that brings, it does bring a brief, you know, yes, dopamine hit, right. yeah. but then, then, it's, the but then it, it passes. Yeah. Um, and, but, there are, but not everything's like that. So that phenomena is um, called adaptation in the psychological literature because you, right. something good happens, you achieve a goal, but then you adapt to it very quickly. So yeah. it doesn't bring you the lasting pleasure you thought it would. But not everything's like that. So friendship, for instance, is a source of 
enduring pleasure for most yeah. people yeah. and um, you know, other kind of absorbing projects yeah. and hobbies. And, that, and those things that are lasting, it sort of goes, in my mind, you know, you might start with, you want to have friends because that'll make you happy. Yeah. But then as you enter into those things, it goes into other areas of contentment, doesn't it, in a way? Well, in some <laughs> You know, like, um, I need this to be happy because it makes me feel needed or, or, or that I'm, I'm worth something, worth someone's interest in me. Um, being in this area or being in this place makes me happy because it reminds me of, you know, so it's, it's almost like there's little trickles coming down from, and I guess my question then is, is happiness the thing we're actually looking for? Well, I think it's not, no, I think right. it's um, a, a, a byproduct, you know, if, again, it depends how you're thinking about happiness, but if you're thinking about happiness as a, as a purely psychological state, then I think it's not what we're looking for. Mm. It's, it's um, a byproduct of mm. what we're looking for. You mm. know, what, really what people are looking for is maybe we should call it flourishing or thriving or some, some, something which is not just a state of mind, yeah. but it's also a way of being. A way of being, yeah, yeah wow. How do, you, how do you explain that to someone? How do you give that to someone? Yeah. Well, in my philosophy of happiness course, which you should... Yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love yeah. you to come and do it. Um, so we, we talk about very different ways you might think of happiness. So, um, uh, you know, very ancient traditions thought of happiness as a matter of engaging in certain kind of worthwhile activities, which um, bring good feelings as a byproduct. Yeah. So you, you have to make yourself into, the project of sort of living a good life in those ancient ways of thinking about it is a sort of project of self-making or something. You have to make yourself the sort of person who engages in worthwhile activities and finds pleasure and satisfaction mm. in doing mm. those things. Yeah. Um, and those things might be, you know, being a good friend, it might be being a great states person, yeah. it might be, you know, all, all sorts of different activities might be worthwhile. Um, uh, but yes, the, the good life consists in, um, you know, doing well at those activities and getting the pleasure as a, as yeah. a byproduct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are many, many other ways of thinking about happiness through history. Some ways, like good hap, the term originally right. comes from the Middle English word hap, meaning fortunate. Right. So in all those biblical sayings, happy yeah. is the man who getteth wisdom. It doesn't mean, yeah. you know, chipper is the person yeah. who getteth <laughs> wisdom. It means lucky, you know, fortunate. Yeah, yeah. And so any good feelings that you get, they're, like, they're a consequence of your mm. happiness. Mm. So you've got these very different ways of thinking about happiness, leading a flourishing life, getting what you want, mm. sort of apart from how that makes you feel, yeah. experiencing lots of pleasure. Yeah. Um, what about hope? How's and the reason why I asked this question is because um, years ago we used to uh, go to, as I was telling you earlier, going to uh, these schools in Uganda mm. and help build these schools in Uganda and sponsor kids and so on. We'd go over and visit them. And, you know, some of those people who had so little and lived in pretty, very difficult circumstances, some of the most hopeful people and in their hope, there was a certain happiness that, mm. that was tangible. Mm. Uh, how, yeah, how does 
hope relate to happiness? Because I think, you know, when we read the news, a lot of that, there's not much hope in, in, in the media when you, when you read a lot of that stuff. Mm. And so how does that affect our, our yeah. idea of happiness or our, our being yeah. in happiness? Well, I think hope, hope is very strongly, in all the psychological studies, mm. correlated with happiness. Um, part, you know, human, most humans have this inbuilt negativity bias, you know, which is why newspaper headlines are almost always, yeah, you know, right. disaster. Yeah. You know, good news is much less attention-grabbing yeah, than bad okay. news. Okay. So, and, and that makes sense because, you know, back on the savannah, <laughs> it, it was much better to sort of pay attention to threats because... Yeah. You lived longer than if you, you know, yeah. the, the, it was better to be, you know, yeah. cap captivated by bad things and right. rather than good things. But now there, there's lots of research about, you know, how optimists um, tend to um, both be more successful and be happier than pessimists. And optimists are people who, you know, they sort of attribute. They, they think they've got some agency in the situation. They attribute the good things that happen to their own agency. And right. Pessimists are people who are, they think that the bad things that happen, you know, first of all, they're likely to happen, but also they're sort of somehow due to them. So, yes, yeah, so they have a certain So they have a certain, it. yeah, that's right. Wow. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? <laughs> what about you as a, as a female philosopher? <laughs> <laughs> well, I spoke to one of our ex-students, uh, Julia Fraser, who yeah. was here, and she stud was studying philosophy, and I spoke to her once, and we were talk having this conversation about, you know, philosophy, historically was quite a patriarchal mm. uh, practice, I guess. In, in your role as a, as a female philosopher, have you seen ways and means, has that been a, an easy thing for you to, to practice? Has, and, and what's the state of female <laughs> philosophy these days philosophy used to be shocking for women you know yeah. worse than computer science and physics and i think even now there's a cultural stereotype that um you know actually it's gotten less shocking to people as i've gotten older but when i was younger people used to be very shocked when a young woman person came in rather than a sort of old guy with a grey beard yeah, yeah. you know that's how Smoking we think Socrates and you know that's the image <laughs> Um, but just in the time I've been, when I started at Sydney Uni, I was the first woman in the history of philosophy at Sydney to have a baby, and I oh, wow. went to the head of department, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, <laughs> but I went to the head of department and said, oh, you know, I'd like to take some maternity leave, and he said, what? He's like, no one had ever, so that, and that was whatever it was, you know, sort of yeah, right. 14 years, not very right. long ago, 13, right. 14 years ago. Just in the time I've been at Sydney, the department's gone from, you know, having, uh, I think I was the second woman appointed full-time in the, you know, to a permanent mm -hmm. position in the history of the department, and now there's almost a half of the department yeah, are women. So I think it's quite different now. I look around in the room, and it just makes a difference to have lots yeah. of other women yeah. there. And how do you think a female mind in the realm of philosophy mm. How does that affect things, or how does that change things? Or what, what, what are the differences? I mean, I guess there's obvious differences that <laughs> men think like men and women think like men. Well, I don't know. I think, I think the kind of women who are attracted to philosophy maybe don't conform fully to the usual. You yeah. know, they, they tend to be, you know, kind of people who are sort of want to ask questions and, um, 
you know, if they tend to be people who are prepared to speak up, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, and I, I think women, you know, they're very different range of really different sort of women yeah. um, in philosophy, and but I think that the diversity is fantastic for philosophy. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think really would be good for philosophy is to have more. A, you know, Asian philosophers and, and people from yeah. different cultural, yeah. not just different um, yeah. gender backgrounds, yeah. but different cultural backgrounds. Yeah. Because I, I think, you know, even now in uh, the Anglo-American world, philosophy is very um, uh, dominated by, you know, Anglo-Americans. Yeah, and, right. and what is it? It's a different kind of perspective and set of experiences yes, that people course, bring. And I think that just enriches the discipline, yeah. really. And it's hard, I guess... It, it, whatever culture you're coming mm. from, you're going to bring some of that into your worldview yeah. and the way you see things. And, yes. and often it's hard, or would you say that it's hard to sometimes sort of decipher a different cultural view on things? You might not, it's not saying you're judging or disagreeing yeah. with it, but just to try and understand it as much. Yeah, I think so. I think because one of the things that philosophy does is question assumptions yeah. that are taken for granted in some area. And I think it really helps sometimes to be an outsider because you can see in a way much more clearly than the yeah. insiders can see what the assumptions are that are sort of being taken for granted. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, when a lot of women initially came into philosophy um, doing feminist philosophy, they wrote some wonderful books like Genevieve Lloyd at the University of New South Wales, the first woman professor, wrote this wonderful book called The Man of Reason, all about how the model of rationality, like what it is to be a rational thinker through Western philosophy had been this implicitly sexist one that no one had really noticed wow. because they were mostly men and yeah, it would just yeah. seem to them, well, that's how, that's how people reason. Yeah. So I think it, being an outsider, especially in a discipline which is about not taking things for granted or uncritically, that, mm. that's really good. Mm. Finally... In terms of what you're doing, I mean, your, let's say your course on happiness, the philosophy of happiness, what sort of impact, and you alluded to this already, I think, in a way, but what sort of impact do you think that this has on individuals, on communities, on the world, you know, discussing these things? Because some people could say, oh, well, you could talk about these things forever. But then how does it, what's the flow of that, do you think, within our world? Um, I think that being able to see clearly and distinguish clearly in your own mind different um, things that might be worth pursuing and how they're different from each other and how sometimes there might be trade-offs between them right. is actually really helpful in a practical, not just a theoretical way, because you, you can see that some, um, some decisions that you make can involve you know trade-offs between different kinds of happiness so yeah. to come back to the having kids case yeah. um, for many people having kids satisfies a long-standing desire yeah. um, it, you kind of uh, but you know there is a lot of data and I must say is having someone who's lived through my fair share of overflowing nappies and sleepless <laughs> nights and stuff I believe this data yeah. that there's a lot of tiredness and grumpiness mm. and exhaustion and mm. anxiety. Are mm. they home? Where are they now? Are they, yeah. you know, are they okay? That comes with having kids. Yeah. So if you're measuring that kind of happiness, the yeah. moment-to-moment feelings, 
then um, you get someone, psychologists like Daniel Gilbert, saying, oh, you know, um, the belief that kids bring happiness is a cultural myth. Mm. He calls it a false super, super replicator, a sort of right. a myth that society sells to, to parents, unwitting parents, um, <laughs> to keep them having kids, even though it makes them miserable. But I think that is a very... Um, you know, inaccurate picture of sort of yeah, what's yeah. going on. It's yeah, yeah. We, we have desires and projects and yeah, things that yeah. we want to do with our life, yeah. some of which are very challenging and so on. Mm. And um, those things don't always go hand in hand with what will make us feel, what will be exactly. most pleasant moment to moment. Exactly. And so sometimes we do, you know, it's nice. Sometimes those things go together yeah. and we don't have to choose, but sometimes yeah. they do come apart. And then I think it helps to... to make informed decisions about these things that you can see how they come apart and you can think to yourself well I'm staring this evidence in the face and that's what I did when I decided to have kids (laughs) took the grass home showed my husband are you really sure we should be doing this look at this the area under the curve shrinking (laughs) shrinking and we just thought yep we're gonna go ahead anyway but part of it is you go ahead and you uh don't have kind of the sort of regrets that you yeah. might have if you, you know the challenge yeah again. that's right that's yeah right. and you don't expect to feel yeah. chipper every moment because that's another way of looking at happiness isn't it that happiness is the avoidance of suffering right yes and can we do that is that is that reality you know? well yeah. arthur schopenhauer he's the philosopher of pessimist he's known he thinks you know life is a net never-ending series of sufferings from which desire fulfillments bring only brief relief <laughs> yes no, we don't want to go down that <laughs> no track and we don't want to enjoy that <laughs> thank you so much caroline it's been wonderful talking to you it's yeah and i'm and i am interested in doing your course because it is it's um it, it seems to me like more than just happiness and i think uh you know so often when we talk about happiness and saying as i said at the beginning wanting people to be happy just in our conversation, that it's just made me more aware of how limited you know, my own views of what it means to be happy. But it's also expanded my idea of just a whole range of other things and just what it, what it means to be, what it means to be human, you know, the whole idea of existing and all that stuff. I'd love it. I'm sure I'd love it. So if you've got a spare spot. To be continued. Know, to be continued, <laughs> yeah. But thank you very much. And thanks, thanks for listening again, everyone. If you've got questions or some feedback about our conversation today, please let me know. I always like to hear it. Hope you're all well. Hope you're happy, whatever that means. (laughs) And I look forward to seeing you around. See you later.